Good morning, church. Uh, this is a reading of God's word from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who, are call, by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in, and, in, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, brother. All right, kiddos, off you go, children. Uh, and as they go to the rear, let me, uh, let, me, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that we have a word that's clear, that we can read, that we can listen to, that we can find hope in. God, comfort us, we pray. Help us to understand the oneness that Christ has achieved and is achieving. We pray in his name. Amen. It's been a hard week. Yet again, another hard week. Um, Yeah, so um, this week we've seen people so allegiant to their political worldview that they send bombs to people that don't share that worldview. Um, we see a man that's so um, allegiant to his whiteness that he goes to a African-American church, can't get in there, and then goes and finds two African-Americans at a grocery store and shoots them. And then yesterday, a man that's so full of hate um, against a worldview that he does not share but he busts himself into an otherwise peaceful gathering and kills 11 people and injures more. This is the world that we live in. And it's a hard and hostile world. And if you're not a Christian this morning and maybe you decided to come and gather with us as Christians to see, what do we say about these things? One of the first things that I would want you to know is that there's an idea called lament. It's all over the Bible. We have a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. If you read the Bible in, in particular, you read the Psalms, you'll find there time and again, you see questions to God in the Bible that say things like, how long, O Lord, must we endure this suffering? Time and again, you read in the Psalms about how it says things like, my enemies are doing well, the wicked are thriving, the innocent are not. I don't understand. Where are you, Lord? And we understand, just as a two read so faithfully for us, that's the word of the Lord. So one of the first things I would want to say to you is that God in his infinite kindness and wisdom knows the pains of this world and he saw it fit to stick words of lamentations and of wondering into His Word so that He would see, that we would see, that He knows. 
this is not the way the world is supposed to be. If you're not a Christian, you also know that we Christians believe that Christ is the center of our faith. And Jesus Christ Himself, who was fully God and fully man, who did not stay aloof, set apart from the world, He entered into it. He Himself lamented of the brokenness of the world. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, we see a lament of Jesus. And I think in this passage, in this lament, we see what's behind all of this hate, all of this hurt, all of this pain, all of this grief, all the junk that we've seen this week. I think we see the thing that Jesus is lamenting. We see its answer. And in that passage, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And then I think he, we see Jesus' understanding of the prescription for peace when He says right after that in verse 39, For I tell you, you will not see Me again until you say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And the reason why I think that is the prescription is because what Jesus is saying there is He's understanding that it is blessed for those that see Christ as Lord. In other words, there are people in the world, when we look at the situation, uh, the situations that have happened this week, what we see is, is there's false worship. There are people that have an allegiance to a political ideology such that they worship to the degree of wanting to kill people for it. We see people so spent on their whiteness that they're wanting to kill black people because they worship their whiteness. We see people so allegiant to their own ideologies, be they uh, anti-Semitism because of their wealth or because they understand that they were the ones that killed Christ. When we, our Christians, understand that all of us killed Christ, whatever it is, they're so allegiant to that worldview that they saw fit to kill people. In other words, friends, what's going on here, what Jesus understands is, is prescribed is, is at the heart of all of that is false worship. People that are not worshiping Christ. People that are not knowing God and understanding the dignity of all humanity, no matter what they believe. And so I can't think of a better passage to consider this morning than Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. We plan these sermon series out long in advance. We pray over them, not knowing what will come in the course of that week. And if I were to pick a few passages to speak into the madness of our past week, I think this would be one of the top verses. And it's the providence of God that we're coming to it. And what you're going to see, friends, is if it's true that what I've just said, that what I believe Jesus is saying, that is the blessed ones that see God for who He actually is and worship Him for who He is, and then they love neighbor in light of the kindness and love of God. If that's true, then what needs to become at the root of all of this mess that we're experiencing, what has to be overcome is false worship. And if false worship is not overcome, if we don't understand God for who He actually is, and then from that, then understand uh, neighbor love, understand that we are to uh, rejoice and to love all of our neighbors as ourselves. Until that happens, until that is overcome, then therefore, there will not be peace in the world. Yes, we should strive for all kinds of reforms and things of the like. But at the root of it, we have to deal with false worship that takes an idea and makes it so preeminent that they seek to hurt others. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He brought peace between hostility by striking at the root of false worship. The first thing we have to do in order to experience this peace, to, to know this peace, to experience love, love of neighbor, love of God, see these laments go away, see heaven brought to earth, and have uh, peacefulness brought uh, so that uh, through proper worship that, um, that values all people. First thing we have to do is we have to go to the darkness. You heard it too. Read it. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. That's exactly what Paul says. You have to remember You have to remember the hard things. 
chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we heard last week, this is uh, 1 to 10, sort of talking about how uh, salvation comes to individuals. If you were to go back and look in chapter 2, 1 to 3, you see there that, that Paul is rehearsing that we need to be reminded, those of us that are in Christ, and even those that are apart from Christ, you need to be reminded, if you are not in Christ, therefore these first three verses of chapter 2 are true of you today. But we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Does that not remind us of exactly what people did this week? They followed the passions of their flesh. And death came when it should not have come. We've got to remember these things so that we can then get to the answer of peace. Paul then moves into verse 11 after having considered individually how we're all separated from Christ. We all, every single one of us, we're following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. We were all by nature children of wrath. Until we actually get there, we can't get answers. Reform is good. But until we actually get down to the level of the Spirit, we'll never have true peace. Paul then moves into verse 11. And he helps us to understand who we were as Gentiles apart from Christ. So now he's sort of pulling the lens back up. He's sort of zeroing in on those first chapter 10, 2 to 10, how an individual comes to faith in Christ. Understanding that we were dark and that God then by His grace sends His Son and opens up their eyes to see the light of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 11 down to 12, he then understands that those Gentiles, that's who he's speaking to. So this letter is written to a church in Ephesus, which was full of Gentiles, which is full of Gentiles means non-Jews. Nations is another way of saying that. And he recognizes that these people need to recognize their story as Gentiles, as the nations that were not part of the nation of Israel. If they're going to understand healing and peace, if they're going to understand oneness, they have to get that. And you see them in those verses, verses 11 and 12, he says that they need to remember five things. And my suspicion is that most of us in this room are these people. Most of us in the room are Gentiles. Most of us in this room are of the nations. We are not of the nation of Israel. And so I think these words are for us. I know these words are for us. Five things that Paul says that we need to remember. Again, if we're going to go into peace, no peace in the world, no reconciliation, no oneness, we've got to go to the darkness. We've got to remember who we were. And he says that we need to remember five things. He says there that we need to remember that we were separated from Christ. Christ means anointed one. Messiah. We're separated from him, which is to say that we were separated from his story. The king of kings and lord of lords, the one that was going to bring peace to the world. We were separated from his story. Outside of it. As the nations, we were separated from Christ. Secondly, we see there that he says we, need, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, that word commonwealth means citizenship. We did not have citizenship in the commonwealth of Israel. <clears throat> God's people in God's place. We had no part in it. We were on the outside. There's a story of an old temple wherein the, we learn of a fence that said that Jews were not, or Gentiles were not allowed to enter into that temple. We were outside the commonwealth. And thirdly, Paul says to remember that we were stranger to the covenants of promise. Now, just think about that for a moment, guys. All of those great promises that we love, that God would be our refuge, that he would be our peace, that he would send uh, uh, us warmth, he would love us, that he would uh, be our refuge, he would be the place that we could hide in, he would fight our battles. All of those things were not ours as a people. And as a result, since we're separated from Christ, since we're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, since we're strangers to the covenants of uh, promises, therefore, fourthly, he says to remember that therefore we had no hope. No hope. Ever feel that way? No hope. And then as a result, since we are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, therefore, we are without God in the world. Five things to remember without God in the world. Now, why would Paul want us to remember such hard things? If you're anything like me, you catch the news that comes over the course of this week. And the last thing you want to do is think about those things. 
What you'd rather do is go turn on a football game and try to not think about those things. That's what I want to do. But Paul says, no, you've got to go there. You've got to remember who you were as a people. And we don't do that real well, do we, as Gentiles, as nations? How many of you walked into this room thinking about your identity as a person of the Gentiles, as a person of the nations? None of us really think that way. And yet Paul says you need to. You need to think about that. We do not oftentimes want to go to the darkness, but friends, unless we touch the darkness, we will not know the joy of light. Henry Nouwen writes in 1975, quote, our culture has become most sophisticated in the avoidance of pain. Not only our physical pain, but our emotional and mental pain. We've become so used to it that we panic when there is nothing or no one left to distract us. But he goes on to write, those who do not run away from our pains, but touch them with compassion, bring healing and new strength. The paradox, indeed, is that the beginning of healing is in the solidarity with the pain. This is why things like the mint are in the Bible. That we would know the brokenness of the world. This is one of the reasons, by the way, why Western peoples have sort of moved on from God. Because they get so used to the world, things are so comfortable, they don't need them anymore. They think everything's fine. And yet it is those that are poor, those that are suffering, they're the ones that actually go in and begin to think about deep things about God. This is exactly why when we go and visit poor communities in Haiti, they're the ones that actually have more contentedness and more peace because they have so little. They have nothing less to do but to hope in God. They know the pain. They know the difficulty. And they're looking forward to a day when that difficulty will be gone. But we palliate ourselves here in a privileged place. And we need to understand that it is important that we go and touch in on the darkness Only knowing prolonged darkness will you long for dusk. Only when you despair of oxygen will you then long for air. Only when you understand hunger will you long for bread. And when that bread comes, you'll be glad. We have to remember who we were. Not just as individuals, but as a people. As a people. We were separated from God. We had no hope. These Ephesians thought one of two things, apparently which is why Paul is writing, they thought one of two things. Either they, they thought they were, on the one hand, they thought they were second-class citizens. That, you know, the Jews are God's people, we're sort of second-class citizens, and therefore, we don't really have a place. So they thought themselves less than the Jews that were in Christ. Or they thought the opposite. They thought that they were better than them. Better than the Jews. The Jews have sort of rejected Jesus and they've sort of moved on. And look at the Gentiles. God's now moving amongst the Gentiles. So we're better than the Jews. They thought one of those two things and in both of them are wrong. And Paul says you need to go back and remember who you were. Humility, friends, is of prominence. And we don't have much of it in this land. But we're going to need it if we're going to know peace. We have to remember who we were. As a people. And only then can we then begin to remember Christ. Remember then Jesus is our peace. Look down there at verse 13. Such a wonderful transition. Similar to what we saw in chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. Wherein we see all those things in which he lists. And then in verse 4 what does he say? But God. Such a wonderful transition. And here we have the similar transition. But again, we're thinking corporately. Don't think so much individually, friend. I'm telling you, as, as a people uh, of the nations, if you're not of the nation of Israel, you've got to work hard to do this because we don't normally do this. Remember us. But now. Before we had but God, but similarly, but now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who once were far off have been brought near. Such, such good news. You who once were f- far off have been brought near, right? When, if you're taking the time to do as Paul says and you're trying to remember the difficulty, the darkness, all of those things in which he ca- tells you to think about, if you're trying to remember those things and the more that you do that, the more that you begin to scream and grope and then Paul says, but now, now the things have changed. If you're in Christ, things have changed. You once were far off. You once could not come in. You once had no hope. We once had no uh, promises. You once did not have Christ. But now, 
Come in. Come. Come near. And in those five verses, we see what Jesus has done. And so let me speak to you, friend, that are not a Christian, maybe a skeptic in the world. You look at things like have happened this week and you say, God can't be real. I want you to think very deeply about this, friend. What you may hear me start to move to in just a moment when I say that Jesus is our peace may sound like an abstract reality to you. But uh, if that's you, can I encourage you to go back and think deeply about what I said at the very beginning? If what Jesus said is right, if what's wrong with the world is, is there's a uh, there's loves, there's passions, there are worship. That is causing us to experience pain and difficulty in the world, the only way at the deepest level. We can talk about 10,000 things that could be done on top of this. But at the deepest level, if you don't understand that that has to be dealt with, that worship has to be turned around, that we could know God and know that He's good, that He's loving, that He's made all people in His image, therefore we should value them. If you don't get that piece of it, this turn that I'm about to make is not going to make a lot of sense to you and it's going to seem abstract and really unhelpful. But if you understand, if you remember that humanity is separate from God, by our sin, by our false worships, all of us, me, all of us, if you get that, you know there's going to have to be something. God's going to have to do something to fix our hearts because we cannot do it on our own. Religion won't do it. You can't obey enough to be made right with God. You can't be really, really religious and do things really, really good. Our hope is not in people trying to be really religious in order to see peace in the world. It won't work. Just try it out this week. What we need is one to come in from the outside to give us peace. And that's what Jesus is. One pastor says that Jesus is uh, in time what God is in eternity. And what's Jesus like? Why did He come? We'll look at those verses. Chapter 2, verse 13 and following. We see in those verses that He brought those of us that are far off near. We learn that this is so key. We learn that he is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Doesn't say that he is the means to peace. He is. It says that he is our peace. We learn there that he has made us one. Here it is. So important. He, Jesus, has broken down the wall of hostility. Nobody else can do that. He has created one new man in the place of the two, it says. He's reconciled us to God and to one another. Look at verse 16, the second half of verse 16. Verse, second half of verse 16, it says, both to God and one body through the cross. Here's our answer as Christians. If you're not a Christian, wondering what Christians think about the hostility in the world, how does peace get brought into the world? Here it is right here. Verse 16, that through both to God and in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So when, this, when, the, when the Bible says killing the hostility, what it means is at the deepest level, the thing that separated us from ourselves and caused us to exalt ourselves, whatever tribe, tongue, or nation, whatever it is, whatever thing that we worship, that, that hostility that is created by us treasuring or valuing or worshiping something more than another, there's a hostility that is created there. And Jesus went down to the root of that. They caused all of that. Our sin, our desire to be more important than others, including God. And Jesus struck at that core and he killed it. For all that believe, he destroyed it on the cross. Just flip back again to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that is those that are in Christ, who once were far off, have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. He killed the hostility. How did he kill the hostility? How did Jesus kill the hostility? By his blood. And look at verse 17. It goes on. And he came and he preached what? Peace. Ever think about Jesus as a preacher? He's going town to town preaching. Ever wonder why Christians give so much time to the sermon? This is why. Jesus came to preach. Mark 1.36 I came that I must preach. And what was the content of His message? Peace. Peace in the world. Why did Jesus come? To bring peace. All this mess. All this, all this madness that we keep hearing about. And all of us want it, right? We all want it over. 
We all want the hostility done with. We all want peace brought in. Every single person on planet Earth wants that to happen. And that's what Jesus offers. Except he's doing it at a level that is so deep we don't often think at that level, so therefore we don't think it's much of importance. But it is. Christ comes preaching peace, and he's preaching that peace, knowing he's going to accomplish the peace on the cross of Christ. And this was his mission. This was Jesus' mission. Just think back. So let me give you, again, if you're unfamiliar with the story of the Bible, there's 66 books in this Bible, 66 books that starts with Genesis and goes to Revelation. It's written on three different continents by, th- uh, by uh, three different continents in three different languages, 40 different authors that entails uh, that had both uh, fishermen and kings and all kinds of people in between. And it all fits together like a puzzle to tell one story. One story, and this is the story, the story of Christ coming into the world. Jesus says in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because in them that you think that you'll have life, but it is they that speak of me, Jesus says. Jesus understands that this is about him. And what is it about him that's so important? He's coming, bringing peace, peace to the world to overcome the hostility. And we can just walk right through. Let me give you just a a brief snapshot of how Jesus brought peace, or at least the, the promises of the peace that's going to come in him. I can think back to, to uh, uh, Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve, they, they rebel against God because they want to be like God, which is the same thing the people that were doing this week were doing because they want to be more important than the other people and they want to try to put them down. Adam and Eve trying to be like God, they rebel against Him. They're sent out of the garden, out of punishment, out of justice. And then God says in, there, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, 16, right through there, that there's going to be one that will crush the head of the serpent. That's Jesus, right at the beginning. The serpent is the one that spoke the lies to Adam and Eve. Which is going to be one that's going to kill the serpent. He's going to crush his head. And then it's going to, it says that on his heel, the one that's crushing the head, his heel will be bruised. In other words, in the midst of destroying the evil one and destroying the hostility and bringing peace, he's going to get hurt in the process. Cross. And we go on to the prophets. We think about Isaiah. And Isaiah says... Uh, he, he, he tells of, a, of one that's going to come in Isaiah 9, verse 6, that there's going to be one that's going to be mighty God and he's going to be said to be the Prince of Peace. And then we see when Jesus comes, he's born of a virgin, just as Isaiah prophesied he would hundreds of years in advance. And when he comes, what do the angels sing? The multitudes show up and they speak or they sing to the Angels, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, on earth, what we want. On earth, what? Peace. Among whom He is pleased. They're singing because there it is. Christ is coming to overcome the hostility and bring peace. Hostility that exists between us and God. Hostility that exists between one another. And then my one of my favorite stories in the Bible, we... After he's born, just a few days later, this old man, Simeon, that has uh, been sitting around in a temple waiting for this day to come. He sees the baby Jesus. He picks him up in his arms and he looks at him and he says to the Lord, let now your servant depart in peace. Why, Simeon? For my eyes have seen your salvation, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, to the nations. Simeon understood. He'd been reading his Bible. He understood that by the power of the Spirit, he understood that part of salvation and coming in is that this Jesus would, in fact, bring healing to the nations. Also healing, most importantly, between us and God. Jesus then comes preaching peace. We can think of the days, uh, the day just before he is gone to be crucified. Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let me stop right there for a second. Some of you are going, when I look at Christians, they don't seem like they have a lot of peace. Well, look what Jesus says next. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. But take heart. For I have overcome the world. Then He says in John 16.33, I have said these things to you that in Me... You may have what? Peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Can I get an amen? Right? I mean, it's so hard. I'm tired of it. 
But it's so good to know that in the midst of all the tribulation that we have to go through, both as Christians that maybe people deride us, but most importantly, or maybe not most importantly, but in addition to that, we think about all the hard things that we have to experience all the time. We read about, we see, we read of and, and talk to friends that have experienced things, be it abuse or whatever the case may be. Jesus says they're right there. He tells us in this world, you're going to have tribulation. It's going to be hard. The Prince of Peace told us it was going to be that way. And he brought peace again. How? By entering into the hostility. So friend, if you're not a Christian, this is an incredibly important thing for you to understand. This is the unique claim of the Christian faith. Every religion on planet Earth largely works the same. They say to you, work really hard, pray enough, read your Bible enough, give to the poor, and if you do that good enough, maybe God will be merciful to you. He'll forgive you and he'll let you into his kingdom. Say it in various ways. The Christian faith says something very different. The Christian faith says, not only is the world hostile, I'm hostile. We just read about that in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And there's no way that we could work our way back to God. And so God's going to have to enter into the hostility to overcome it himself since we can't do it. This is so important. This is why the Christian's hope is very different than the hope of the rest of the world. Our hope is not in religion. Our hope is not in humanism. That is sort of things that we can kind of create to overcome the hostility and bring peace. Our hope is not ultimately there, though we're not opposed to those things. Our hope is deeper than that. Our hope is in the one to bring peace. Our hope is in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one that would bring peace through the shedding of his blood. And this is, when you look at the life of Jesus, you see the peace, right? I mean, he's, he's welcoming all kinds of people, doing all kinds of things. He has a care for the poor, for those that have been oppressed, those that have been set aside. He cares for them, and he loves them. And we look at it and say, that's right. There's something about him that is peaceful. And so we Christians believe that Christ entered into the world. He gave his life on the cross, overcoming the depth of that false worship through all of our sin through paying the penalty for all of our sin, my sin, buried and rises again on the third day. Therefore, it illustrates to us that in fact, peace can be had. Sin can be overcome. Friendship with God and friendship with mankind can happen again because he paid the payment on the cross. That's what Paul means when he says there that this peace comes by his blood, killing the hostility. It goes on to say there in this passage, chapter 2 verse 15, the law and the law of commandments and ordinances that separated Jew from Gentile are now nullified. That is, it says that they're abolished. Uh, some of you may be sort of getting worked up about that because Jesus says in another passage, you know, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So it sounds like one of those contradictions of the Bible. First off, two things to note. One, two different Greek words behind there. They're not the same word. But secondly, more importantly, what Paul is saying here in chapter 2, verse 15, is that those laws, those ceremonial laws that we read about in the Old Testament that, ju- that Gentiles were not allowed to do, all that gets broken down because Christ fulfills them. The word in the Greek there is nullified. That is to say, since he accomplishes it, therefore they're nullified. He fulfilled all the priestly and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament that separated Jew from Gentile. You think about this. The only person that could go into the presence of God was on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 17. Only a a priest could go in there. That priest had to be a Jew. But at least a Jew could get into the presence of God. No Gentile ever could. And Jesus comes in, fulfills those priestly laws, fulfills those ceremonial laws. And therefore, as a result of him doing that, paying for the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile and between us and God. And therefore, as a result, those of us that repent and believe, we now can go in, which, by the way, is one of the most preeminent things to understand uh, in the gospel, in the Bible. Many of you know this story. When Jesus dies, what happens? Darkness comes and then something happens a few miles off. There's a veil in the temple. So critical to understand. The temple was the center of worship for the Jews. And inside of that temple, the very center of it was said to be the presence of God. It was the, called the Holy of Holies. And then there was this other room that was sort of another kind of holy place, but it wasn't inside of that. And it was separated by a veil. And when Christ died, paying for the hostility, note what the text says. It's so important. The veil was torn from top to bottom. God was doing the one. He was the one that was tearing it. From top to bottom. What does that symbolize? Why is that so important? 
Because all those that repent and trust in Jesus, trusting his sacrifice for our sin, we therefore the hostility has been killed and therefore Jew and Gentile can go on in. Look at verse 18 of chapter two, for through him, we both have access in one spirit. To the father, that's good news. That's peace. So there's now no more, no more sort of hostility between us and our fellow man. We are now one new man. If you go back and look at that, Paul even says that. For he himself, look at verse 14, for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, the two being Jew and Gentile. So making, there it is, Peace. And he did it. By his grace. And so those that trust in Jesus, we are no longer we are no longer separated. We now can enter in. And so, friends, this is what I mean when I say that our hope is in Christ for peace in the world. If it is true that sin has separated us from God and separated us from one another, the only way to get that right again and bring peace again is to have proper worship be brought in. Proper worship to the one true God that made people, all people, in His image. And therefore, we understand grace. We understand mercy. We understand that we were enemies and God reconciled us to Himself. We remember that we once were far off and been brought near. And so therefore, if there are people that are far off, we're going to be loving to them. We're going to be kind to them. We're going to love them and care for them, no matter who they are and what they believe. And that, as a result of that, that, that changes. So, so, just, so take the guy yesterday, Robert Bowers, I think his name is. If he got that, he wouldn't have walked into that synagogue. Do you see how actually practical this is? Had he understood grace, had he understood that he once was far off, had he once understood that he was a stranger to the promises, has he once understood that he had no hope, he was not better than anybody else, had he understood that, had he understood grace and understood that Christ came and made it possible for him to have his sin atoned for, that he could come back into God and know God and have all of his sin forgiven, he would not have never have actually gone into that place. That man that wanted to kill black people, he would never have killed them. And if he understood grace. See, this beautiful picture of Christ as our peace, friends, is not only just some abstract truth. It is a spiritual reality that changes lives. Changes communities. Friends, just take a look around at this congregation. we got people from all over the world in this place. Different backgrounds, different upbringings. I sometimes wonder if I'm the only person in this church that's not able to speak another language. And it's beautiful. I wouldn't have it any other way. So, the peace of Christ, most importantly, brings peace to our hearts and it reorients our loves. It reorients our worships to God. And we see Him for who He is. We see how gracious He was to us, how kind He was to us, how good He was to us by sending His Son. And Jesus came preaching peace and accomplishing peace on the cross and through the resurrection. And all of us, myself, we weren't good people when He died for us. I was an enemy according to Romans 10. If you look back to chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, I was dead in my sin. I was following the hostile things of the world. I was being hostile myself. And God in His grace saved me. And the more that I, as Paul says, I need to remember that. The more I see that, the more that I love Jesus. The more that I love Jesus more that I love His grace, love His love for me. And that causes me, no matter who it is that hates God, I can love them. Because I was once them. And so it is not only spiritually true, this gospel of Jesus Christ, not only does it change things for us individually and most importantly in the economy of God's kingdom, I now have a home, as I'll get to in just a moment, but also it helps me very practically in the here and now. The gospel is the answer to racism. Classism, whatever ism you can think of, it's the answer because it's going to get down to the root of false worship and bring peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. There's now no longer groups, no longer classes. There's now one new man. The cross, in the other words, is level at the foot of the cross. The, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
And so we remember. But if, if we're going to experience this, we've got to remember who we were. As a people, as Gentiles. And secondly, we've got to remember that Jesus Christ is our peace. And friend, I would appeal to you. If you are not a Christian. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. He is the only way to salvation. He is the only way that you will actually know peace in the world. He's the only way. Trust Him. You can't do enough good things to enter into the kingdom of God. He's the only way you're going to find peace in the world. But don't use Him as just a utility to get peace. Understand, as the text says here, that He is your peace. I wake up every day and I think, and it's not always easy for me, but I wake up every day and I say, Jesus, you're my peace. I want to live for you today. Not because I have to, because I want to. You're my peace. You're all I have. I don't have you. I've got nothing in the world. This world's too hard. But if I have you, I've got everything. Turn to Christ. Not as a utility to bring about peace. But turn to Christ that you might find peace in worshiping Him. And if you do, we then see the third thing that we find in verses 19 to 22. That if you've trusted in Christ as your peace, you now have a home. You have a home. Verses 19 to 22, you now have a home. We remember who we were. We remember Christ as our peace. And we remember that through Him, we now have a home. Just look at those passages. Look at verse 18. Remember, for through Him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father, So then, see, he's concluding. You see what he's doing? So then, since you have peace with God, and since you have peace with those that are trusting in Christ, no matter if they're Jew or Gentile, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now remember back into those first couple verses. Remember verse 11 and 12? Remember he said you were strangers and aliens? Remember that? Now he's reminding you, look, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but now you're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of house and members of the household of God. We were shut out as Gentile people, but now we're able to come in. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The meaning of that means just the built on the foundation of the true teaching of the word. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And here it is again. We can't get past it. Paul can't help but go back to this. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What's a cornerstone? Cornerstone is a key piece of rock by which everything on top of it builds. You don't have a cornerstone. You got no house. Christ is our peace. He's the one of whom we worship. He's the one of whom we love. Our lives are built on Him. That's why we come every single Sunday and we worship Him. Again, not because we have to, but He's the whole reason we're alive. That's the whole reason we have peace in the midst of a hard world. We stand on Christ. He is our cornerstone. He's not just one of the stones among many that kind of helps us because it's a pretty rock. No, He's all we got. And so because it's there, we can stand. When my dad died, I've never forgotten this. I'm haunted by this. When my dad died, when I was 22 years old, he was 50, he was 50 years old. He just turned 50. He was young. I saw him the night before he died. And the pastor gets up on that memorial service. And he says, if you're wondering what the, if the Knight family has a, a, a kind of strange piece in the midst of this, this is why. And I've always remembered that because it was true. It put words to something that I didn't have words to. In the midst of losing my dad, I could stand up. I could stand up. It was hard. I still wept. But I could stand because Christ was my cornerstone. And the, and the terror of death was overcoming him. I was going to be all right. So was my family because they trust Jesus. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. You're fellow citizens, saints and members of the household of God. Household of God. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom in whom the whole structure, the house being joined together. Think about this restoration church. Let me speak to you, members of restoration church in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. You ever ever feel like I I'm not a finished work ever feel that way ever feel like I still have a lot of work to do. I ever feel like I don't have a lot of peace, but I need peace. But I'm looking to Jesus ever feel that way ever feel like as a church like we got some work to be done. Right. Our house needs to be cleaned up a little bit. And, and, and yes and amen. Right. All of us. Right. And yet, isn't it good to know that it says there you are being built. We still got work to do. And the Lord's like, I know it's fine. I'm working on it. Patience. Trust me. And a day is going to come, friends, when we will stand in front of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
and this church, when all of our mess will be cleaned up. And we will be one. We'll see it and enjoy it. And it'll be beautiful. We are the household of God. See, that temple that was existing in Judaism, in Jew, in the Jewish story of the Old Testament, there was a temple that God, as I mentioned before, sat in there. That veil, remember, tears. And now where's the temple? Don't look like much. I'm the temple of God. Nathan, is that because you think you're so good? No, I remember that I'm a piece of work. I'm only by grace here standing before you, preaching his word, trying to plead with you that don't believe to come and find home in him. Those of us that are Restoration Church, members of Restoration Church, when you talk to them, you hopefully sense some level of humility because we understand who we were. The fact that we are now the temple of God being built into that holy household of God is not anything to be prideful over because we did nothing to accomplish it and everything to despise it. Yet God in His grace made us, made me His home. And this is what He always wanted. Go back in your Bibles. Look at Genesis chapter 12. This is the beginning of the Bible. If you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, as you can see, this is the very beginning of the Bible. And look what God says. This plan, this oneness, this unity that we have in Christ, this is what He was always doing from the very beginning. Genesis 12, verses 1 down to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, uh, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. This is important. And in you, in your seed, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Exactly what Paul is writing about has been accomplished. I could take you to Galatians 3. I'm not going to do that, but let me show you one other. So let me tie this story together, kind of bring it all together. Gen- uh, John chapter 12. I think it is. Look at John 12. All right, this is right in front of the cross. All right, Jesus says in John 12, uh, look down at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast. Remember what I said, the heart of our problem is worship. We're sinful. We want to worship our own ways. These people are going to worship. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. That is to say, some nations, some Gentiles. So these came to Philip, that's one of the disciples, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. In other words, people from the nations want to go see Jesus. They want to go worship Jesus. People of the Gentiles want to worship Jesus. I could take you back to Isaiah chapter 2. Not going to do that. Where it was said that the nations are going to stream to him. Verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. Game time. Or as the text says, the hour has come. Do you see what's going on here? Genesis chapter 12, there's a promise to the seed of Abraham that through him all the families of the earth are going to come and be one. One with God, one with each other. He sets apart the Jewish people for a time. They try and get it right and they don't trust God. And so all kinds of hostility continues on. So God then enters into the picture in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, knowing that He comes to get, yes, Jew, but also Gentile, make them one before God and one another. And the second a Greek, the second a Gentile comes in and says, we want to see Jesus. Jesus is like, yep, game time. Time to go to the cross. He knows that that's it. That's the kicker. And then, let's do it just for fun. Galatians 3. we got time. All right. This is what happens when I don't preach off of notes. Galatians 3. Galatians 3. Look at this. I want, you to, I want you to see how the Bible story comes together as Christ is our peace and we have hope in Him. Galatians chapter 3 says this. Oh, get there, get there, get there. He says, look at verse, uh, um, uh, verse 7. 3, 7. Know then that it is those who of, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the nations, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. God's preaching the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying that in you shall all the nations be blessed. Didn't we just read that? Genesis 12, 3. So then those who are of faith are blessed 
along with Abraham, the man of faith, which is to say we have peace. We're blessed. We have peace with God and with one another since we have the faith of Abraham. Genesis 15, verse uh, 7, somewhere in there. Genesis 15, where, G, where Paul looks at the stars in the skies and says, I believe and is credited to him as righteousness. He's believing the one true God. He's believing in Jesus. The gospel's preached. And so those of us that have the same faith as him, that trust Jesus, we're engrafted into this story. Jesus knew that. That's what took him on. Paul understands that. He's applying Genesis to Gentiles as well as believers. And then final up, this is, Uh, Revelation chapter 5. So here it is. Here's the end of the story. This is what we're waiting on. This is why the Bible says, by the way, this is the last hour. The reason why it says it's the last hour is there's one chapter left, and that's the one we're waiting on. All these chapters through all of Scripture, see here? Remember, I started back over here, now I'm back here. Okay? Now all these chapters have come to fruition. There's one left, and here it is. Revelation 5. This is the end. This is John, an apostle of Christ, understanding, looking into the future. God is giving him eyes to see what's going to come. And he says in Revelation 5, 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures creatures, uh, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Hang on. I'm missing it up. I'm messing it up. Go back a little bit. Go back a little bit. Here it is. Verse 5, chapter 5, verse 3. And no one in... Well, verse 1. Let's do verse 1. 5.1, 5.1, Revelation 5.1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and his seven seals. And I saw, look verse 6, and I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's the cross. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2.13, killing, killing the hostility by his blood. That's the lamb that was slain. Same language. And then he goes down. He sees this lamb, John does, in verse 8. And, and when he, the lamb, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Remember what I said about worship? each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Saints, your prayers are being heard. Right there, it says it. There's, when Jesus is going to get the scroll, there's, a, there's some bowls with our prayers in it. I don't quite understand that, but it's amazing. All right? And then look at verse 9. And they sang a new song saying what? Worthy are you to take the scrolls and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood. Same language as Paul. You ransomed people. What do we need? It's got to be the nations. You ransomed people for God. One people. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. If you want more, slide over to 7.9. After this I looked and behold... Great multitude that no one could number. The assembly is so great. This is, a, this is a great church service. right? After this I look and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from all nations, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, that means we're made holy, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Not to me, to Him. He accomplished it on the cross. He brought oneness Christian, between me and you. That's the story of the Bible. What the world wants is peace. What the world wants is oneness. And that's what Jesus accomplishes. It's a spiritual reality that results and manifests itself now as we wait even in material realities. As is evidenced by churches preaching the Gospel. And then they scatter out to try to illustrate peace in the world. And so I'm going to end really briefly with a few applications. One, Restoration Church, remember, we have been made one. We've been made one. There's no room in this church for racism, 
There's no room in this church. While we're still going to maintain gender and uh, male and female uh, gender roles, there's no room for hierarchy of genders in this church. No room for it. In this church, there's no room for thinking yourself better because you have a better education because you went to one school and the other person didn't go to school at all. Whatever, there's no room for that. We're one. It's the beauty of the church. Jesus says, the world will know you're my disciples by the way you love each other. All of you. No matter what you're like, where you come from, what you do like or don't like, be sensitive to your friends groups. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't have common interest friends. That's fine. That's good. But just be attentive that you're not making friends with all the people that are just like you. Try to encourage that oneness that you have. Enjoy it. Secondly, remember in light of Christ's overcoming the hostility, bringing peace with God and one another. Not only do we have one, remember, Christian, you have oneness with God. Listen, Christian, God's no longer angry at you. You're not a stranger anymore. You're not an alien anymore. He loves you. You're his son. You're his daughter. He's for you. He's not against you. Love him. He's for you. He's your father. He's a good father. Remember your oneness with God. And thirdly, as a result of this, might I encourage us as a congregation to do what many of you are already doing. The step I'm about to take, you need to know exegetically, is a very tricky one, dangerous one. I want to encourage us to go and be peacemakers in the world. We have, the reason why it's tricky is because we have no promise in the world that will heal racism until Jesus comes back. There's no promise of that. There is a promise that we have oneness with each other. That's promise. That's sure. But we need to also know that in light of what we know about the gospel and the power that we have in Christ, we can then go out and be peacemakers in the world. So take your trade. I don't know what it is. Take your interest. Find ways to make peace in the world. Find ways to make peace. Whatever it is you do, whatever your interest is, find ways to make peace. Get involved in something. Get a job that does that. I don't know what it is. Big, small, great. What it finds some ways to bring peace, to be a peacemaker in the world as a church. We are the church gathered that recalls the oneness we have in Christ, oneness we have with God. And then we scatter from that good news and we go and try to find the ways to make peace in the world. So we go to people that are anti-Semites. And even though we, even though we disagree with Judaism's teaching about Jesus, we're still going to advocate for them and say, you can't kill them. Find ways to overcome the systemic racism and white supremacy that still exists. Do something tempted to go off on another sermon, but I'm not going to do it. If you want to read more about how one little group of people did this, read the Clapham sect by Stephen Tompkins. These are potters, lawyers, politicians, writers coming together to think about how can we bring peace to the world. And lastly, final application is to the lost, those that don't know Jesus, the skeptics, the non-Christians in the room. Might I plead with you one more time? To trust Jesus. You saw Jesus, the way of Christ, is going to be a way of tribulation. I'm not going to tell you that things will get easier. Matter of fact, I could probably, it's probably better for me to say it's going to get harder. But it is peace. Christ has overcome the hostility of the world. And I would encourage you to trust Him and follow Him and come join this household of God and enjoy His peace forever. And soon enough, Christ will return. And this world that is so full of hostility will be what God intended it to be. The stamp of how that is already assured to us is already had in the resurrection. And we wait for it day after day. Making disciples, being peacemakers, enjoying God, enjoying one another, remembering who we were, remembering Christ as our peace, remembering that we're no longer strangers and aliens, hoping in heaven. Come and join us. If you want to do that, talk more about Jesus as our peace, you come talk to me, talk to your neighbor that brought you. Let's now pray. Jesus, thank you for taking away our sin. Thank you for removing the hostility that was caused by my guilt, our guilt. Thank you for the promise of peace 
Promise of oneness. Promise of unity. God, I pray for us as a church, Restoration Church, that we would do what Paul counsels in Ephesians 4, 3, as we'll think about later, that we would eagerly work for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We would not get too wrapped up in preaching styles or music styles or dressing styles, but instead we would understand that who we are in Christ is better than all of those things. Lord, I pray also that those that don't trust Jesus would come to know the joy of Christ. They would repent of their false worship and find peace with Him and peace with one another. Until then, God, may we lament well, hoping in heaven, and may it come soon. Jesus, You are our cornerstone. And we thank You that in You we have a home. We pray this in Your name. Amen.